What a delightful and joyous occasion to be able to come together this evening. How thrilling it is to be able to pray unto God, to lift our voices together in song, and just to have a cheerful attitude and disposition about the wonderful blessings that we've so richly been able to enjoy today. I've heard several who've commented about the loveliness of this season, the way we've been able to envision and participate in that today. And perhaps how better way could there be than as the shades of a Lord's Day evening gather that we're able to, in fact, study His Word, encourage one another, and set ourselves with a proper direction to serve Him perhaps more wonderfully and more enthusiastically through, through this coming week. As I mentioned this morning, in appreciation to Brother Harold for filling in so capably last Lord's Day morning, I'd like to share the same in regard to Jeff tonight. The terrific lesson that was shared, the happiness with which, and the gratitude with which we're able to share to him for his willingness to do that. Certainly we're blessed to have men here who not only have that capability, but have the interest and to step forward in the duties like that when, when that is asked of them. And for that, certainly we're so thankful. Tonight, as you can tell by not only what's in the bulletin, but also the screen or the wall to my left, we shall turn our attention to the first two verses of Hebrews 12. I hope you might still have that mark from where Lucas read it with us a moment ago, and we will look more intently at some of the features and some of the characteristics of that text as we strive to make application of it to our lives more directly tonight. As I might perhaps say as we open that, some of the characteristics of the book of Hebrews would in fact be in order to perhaps bring our minds to focus to perhaps what the Hebrew writer was more interestedly trying to set before the, right, the listeners of that day as well as to us too. In 13 chapters, the Hebrew writer was dealing with individuals who had a rather strong temptation to turn backward from the nature of the gospel to serve beneath again the law of Moses. I think as we've mentioned in that overview of the, he of the New Testament not too long back now, we saw that the Hebrew letter was written to individuals very much like that. They had left the ways of the law of Moses, come out from under the Jewish economy, and now had become Christians, but there was a problem at least from their standpoint. They weren't persecuted when they were serving under the law of Moses. But now, as Christians, the Roman Empire persecuted them. Others about them did not accept the gloriousness of that faith. And hence, they were suffering beneath a rather dramatic burden from those about them. Many, it would seem, had either already made the decision or were in the process of reaching the conclusion, this walk with Christ isn't worth it. I can go back and serve under the law of Moses and not suffer this kind of persecution. It was to that kind of mentality that the Hebrew writer in 13 chapters offers them one reason after another for why that kind of decision is a bad one. Again, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Christ is superior to the angels. Christ is superior to Moses. Chapters 5 and following, the high priesthood of Christ is far greater than that of Levi, which was the high priest, the first under the law of Moses. In fact, one of those favorite passages in the book of Hebrews is that Christ forever is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 7, verses 1 and following. Lifting him above, you see, the attitude of comparing him with Levi. He stretches back to Genesis 14, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. At that point, however, 
we arrive at verses eight, or chapters 8, 9, and 10. Notice in chapter 8, not only is the high priesthood of Jesus so marvelous, so perfect, and so great, but the testament, that is, the will through which and over which he serves as high priest is perfect. The law of Moses wasn't perfect. Remember, we serve under a better covenant that's founded and established upon better promises, Hebrews 8, verse 6. To that extent, chapter 8, verse 13, thus says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Thus the Hebrew writer points out to them, even if you do desire to return to the law of Moses, that law is no longer here. Didn't Paul say to the Colossians it was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14? With that said, the last three chapters of this book, chapters 11, 12, and 13, thus challenge our mind by perhaps reaching the crescendo, the zenith, in which the subject of faith is presented. It is still true, isn't it, that there may be no subject in all of Christianity that is more controversial, more under discussion, and more set that seems to distinguish individuals than the reality of faith. Admittedly, there are few that would argue that faith is essential to be saved, but what does that faith mean? In a concrete fashion, what is faith? May I submit to you in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we find an inspired exposition of what faith is. And in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the subject primary for, primarily for tonight, we will come to ask how it applies to us. The very first word of Hebrews 12 is something that we shall emphasize in a moment. But as a part of that emphasis, we do need to revisit chapter 11. So might I ask you to revisit with me, looking more intently at an overview of chapter 11. Now chapter 11 has some 40 verses, so we shall not stay here long enough tonight to expound the thoroughness of that chapter. But could we not at least see the highlights? It begins in verse 1 this way. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. After ten chapters of building a foundation for what it means to serve Christ properly in this era and why it would be such a terrible idea to return to the law of Moses, he now urges these to be individuals of faith. And he explains it to them in words that you and I just noted. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith has an impressive character about it whereby it is that substance, the very core idea, the evidence, if you will, of that which is hoped for. Not that you can touch or see it, for as Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, if that is something we see, then why do we need to hope for it? Has it not often perhaps been said in regard to heaven that one of the beautiful things concerning it is that we can reach for it? You and I don't see it now. It is not able to be seen with this physical material eye, but with the eye of faith we grasp for it. We long to experience it. We so anxiously look forward to being able to be a part of it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is still the case that there are times, though very few scientists would in fact express it so in class, 
we often ask our students to walk on a roadway of faith in regard to certain things. Perhaps from third grade on, we challenge our students and encourage them to learn the structure of an atom. And yet, how many of them have ever seen one? Even a college student, how many of them have ever seen an atom? There's, of course, a good reason as to why they have, and it's exceedingly small, isn't it? Far, far smaller, in fact, than even the hair that would be on my head or yours. But yet, we encourage them to learn its structure, be able to recite some of the facets and aspects of it, and to be able to regurgitate that on an exam as if it were absolute fact. You see, we do expect them to appreciate that a hundred of years of experiments have led to that conclusion. Might I submit to you, as individuals interested in the Word of God, we have a stronger aspect than human experimentation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. At this point, notice then this brilliant stroke that the Hebrew writer proceeds to, to state before those who heard. Beginning in verse 2, he starts to list individuals who in fact walked by the pathway of faith. They chose to direct their lives by virtue of and in response to the means of faith. He starts with a matter of creation. Through faith, verse 3, we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. We highlighted in a Sunday evening lesson not long back the fact that God spoke this universe into, into existence. He did not take something and refashion it or remake it. We know that no scientist can do that today. It absolutely violates the first law of thermodynamics. But yet God did it, of course. But in fact, the Hebrew writer is only beginning. In verse number 4, you'll notice he begins to make a listing of some of the most worthy and notable individuals in all the Old Testament. He starts with Abel and proceeds to Enoch, and from there to Noah in verse 7. Following Noah, we can well appreciate verse number 8, Abraham. As you can see, next quickly comes Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. Then we see, in fact, Joseph in verse 22, Moses in verse 23. On we then see even Rahab in verse 31. And then a rather brief listing in verse 32 of some others. Just listing those names, it might be easy to bypass them and fail to appreciate the point the writer's making. In fact, after having looked at them, let me now revisit them at least quickly one at a time and emphasize another word with them. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch was translated. By faith, Noah moved by faith. Abraham went in obedience. By faith, Sarah received strength. By faith, Isaac blessed. By faith, Jacob blessed. By faith, Moses chose. By faith, Rahab perished not. And as you can see in verses 32 and following, the point that the writer then makes was not merely to mention the names, but to emphasize how faith practically represented itself. They each acted in response to that faith. 
One of the most powerful aspects then of this chapter, no doubt, would be this. Faith is not merely mental. It certainly involves belief. One must believe. In fact, verse 6 of this chapter amplifies that point. Does it not still say, without faith it's impossible to, to please Him? For he that cometh to God must believe that He is. Belief is thus necessary, but that belief must manifest itself in those actions on a daily basis in response to God's commands. And hence, we again notice Noah in verse 7 moved and built. All God needed to do was command him to construct the ark and his faith manifested itself in the action of doing it. Similarly, we notice in verse 25, God gave urgency to Moses in regard of leading the people out of Egypt. And notice Moses made a choice in response to that commandment. He chose rather to suffer affliction with God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. We can notice all the others in the same fashion in vain. That leads us perhaps to observe that much of our religious world today is sorely confused on the subject of faith, aren't they? We are in fact often told by way of the television, all you need to do is believe. Pray over a handkerchief and send me some money and your name is enrolled in God's book of life. Friend, that isn't found anywhere in God's precious book. And it's sad to think of the delusion that is brought upon man, man's mind in such terrible teaching. Faith, as we see in this powerful example, amplifies itself and must be demonstrated in what one does. Every instance here we find verbs attached to the thing that was done by faith. That leads us to see today then that when you and I act in faith, we too do so in humble acquiescence to the nature of what God has commanded. For those that are Christians, do you remember the day you obeyed the gospel? When maybe that preacher or that other instance, it may not even have been a Sunday admittedly, but you made that decision to walk on the platform of faith onto what you knew this book taught, that you had to believe, you had to repent, you needed to confess, and you still needed to be baptized. When you made that decision, it was a glorious day in not only your physical life, but in your eternal life too. You walked by faith. You trusted what God said. For at that time and still to this day, we understand the fact it's God's plan. No human would have come up with it. It was based upon the reality of what His Son accomplished and what you and I must do to contact the saving nature of that blood. That is part of walking in faith. Since you've become a Christian, how many times since? Have you chosen to do something that the world would have said is foolish? That's not a wise decision, but yet you by faith acted in that way and you've been blessed because of it. You chose to walk in faith. Your friends may have laughed at you. In fact, they may have insulted you. They may have had nothing to do with you at times thereafter. But you chose to walk in faith because that's what God said. And that's what faith involves, isn't it? An humble, childlike trust in the declarations of this book. Though you can't see all the reality of it now, we know it exists because God said so. And is it not true that that is based in part, admittedly, on a degree of evidence? Have we ever seen God fail yet? Have you ever seen anything amiss yet? 
in all this book, all 31,102 verses, have we ever found a mistake? Be it geographical, be it related to person, be it related to anything else. Well, no, we haven't. And if this book is true in all those checkable ways, shall we not have confidence in its spiritual declarations, its spiritual proclamations? We certainly have found no mistake. Even those Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes of the Lord's day couldn't find one either. Whenever they challenged our Savior, notice it was not on the points of the law. Oh, they would ask him questions like which law is the greatest in Matthew 22. But they didn't argue about the existence of the laws themselves. As we study then this particular chapter, Hebrews 11, let me read verses 38 through 40 now. The last three verses of the chapter. With an emphasis on the beauty of faith to this point, let's bring it home to my life and yours today. Of whom the world was not worthy... They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report, through faith receive not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Isn't it then a beautiful thing to consider that these notable worthies like Moses, Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Abel, Jacob, Joseph, Sarah, and the others, as often as we look back to their lives as examples of faithful living, as examples of righteous and holy disposition, the writer says, look, to these Hebrews, look, they never received the promise. They lived in faith, admittedly, but they did not live to appreciate the glory of the thing to which they looked forward to. And then the point of verse 40 is this. God having provided some better thing for us. For us. Have you ever thought about the fact God has something better for you than He had for Noah? Something better for you than He had for Moses? Something better for you than He had for Joseph or Jacob? That's what the Hebrew writer said. We live under a better testament. We live under the gospel and they never did. We have the sacrifice at Calvary that they never had. Jesus hadn't come to this earth yet when they lived. He hadn't shed His blood yet when they lived. There was no church when they were here upon earth. God had some better thing for us. That should bring a grand smile to our face to receive our appreciation of how God has been so good to us. That also means, of course, that verse 40 closes this way that they, that is those worthies, without us should not be made perfect. You see, they looked forward to the grand blessings that we now enjoy. The total forgiveness of sin, remember, those animal sacrifices beneath the Old Testament could never make the comers thereunto perfect. Hebrews 10, verse 4. Is it not still the case that as we read that same verse, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin? You see, they had to wait for the earnestness of what you and I now enjoy, the sacrifice of what occurred on the walls just outside Jerusalem when Jesus shed His blood, cleansing our sins and theirs as well. It is truly a breathtaking scene. With that kind of idea in mind, notice what now happens in the very next verse. 
you see, we should appreciate that the division of the Holy Scriptures into chapters and into verses was not done by the Holy Spirit. Men chose to do that, and we should be thankful they did. It helps in memorization. It helps in appreciating the thrust of various passages and blocking it off in mind and learning it. But as far as thinking that the thought suddenly changes from Hebrews 11.40 to Hebrews 12.1, it does not do that. So much so that now we're ready to look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We can begin, I think, to gain a feeling for the emphasis of the placement of these verses. After listing these worthy individuals of Old Testament lore, those who would have been familiar to any Jew, people like Moses and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and the others, all Jews would have been thoroughly acquainted with their history, would have known the greatness of their life and what it meant to be descended through them. The writer now says, wherefore. That's one of those connecting words in the English language, isn't it? In fact, if you're reading in the American Standard, that word is therefore. In other words, this verse is a conclusion to what has just been said in the previous chapter. After listing the greatness of faith, what it means to walk by faith, how that impacts one's life, the writer says, Now, therefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, we have a whole host of individuals who have shown what it means to walk by faith. They, though beset by difficult and troubling things, walked by faith and thus showed us it can be done. Notice again to those Hebrews, that would have been meaningful. They were about to be crushed beneath the weight of persecution. They were turning aside one after the other into apostasy and thus rebelling against Jesus. The writer says, Gentlemen, have you forgotten about Abraham? Have you forgotten about Moses and Sarah and Joseph? To walk by faith for them meant despite troubling times, despite difficult moments and persecution and things that others turned about you in a difficult way, they remain faithful. We've been discussing Joseph on Sunday morning, haven't we? Here was one thrown into prison. Falsely, he never tried to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife, and yet the lie was told that he had, and into prison he went. We notice, though, that God was with him. His faithfulness was never called into question in the eyes of heaven. Oh, it's true that Potiphar looked on him a bit differently. He believed his wife. But notice the Lord was still with Joseph. Might something like that be said of my walk of faith and yours, appreciating that again others may not have the best things to say. They may not agree with your political views. They may not agree with the decisions you make in terms of association with others of, say, character being of less repute. Nonetheless, in faith, you and I should appreciate that indeed, is that not how we walk? We walk by faith and not by sight, to quote 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 7. Looking back to this text before us, 
seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. That marvelous cloud of witnesses leads us to near the end of verse number 1. Let us lay aside every weight. What does then it mean to bring to our attention the thought of these witnesses? May I submit it could well be described in a way like this. These witnesses are almost described as though they are a cheering section set aside in the realms beyond what you and I can see currently. Now, I'm not suggesting, in fact, that they are literally watching us from that place we'd call paradise. I don't think from Scripture we can necessarily draw that conclusion. But can you imagine in paradise that there are these worthies like Noah and like Abraham and like the others we've read about in chapter 11 who are urging and rooting for us to be faithful enough to be one day where they are. That seems to be what the Hebrew writer is saying. To these again of Jewish background, think how meaningful that would have been to imagine Noah or Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, somewhere pulling for me. Certainly not hoping that I would apostatize and turn aside from what will allow me to be one day where he is. We have a cheering section, a cloud of witnesses, those who have exhibited faithfulness, who show that it can be done, and who are reaping now the benefits of that faithfulness. What does it mean for you and me? Verse number 1, let us lay aside every weight. We notice that there are some things that are categorized as weights. W-E-I-G-H-T-S. Weights. Things that appear as hindrances. Things that appear as obstacles in the path and in the way. Let us set aside. Lay aside every weight. May I suggest that we might learn something by noticing the next comparison, and then we'll take them both together. He says, lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This is one of those passages in which the Christian life is likened unto a race, isn't it? A race. It hadn't been now very many months to where you and I may have watched the Olympics on, on the television. It was, what, back in August, I think? As we perhaps sat and watched these runners who were the best runners in the world... Many of them were truly amazing, in fact, I think we'd all agree, to cover 100 meters that quickly or to run a marathon as quickly and as energetically as some of them seem to do it or to run the 200-meter hurdles the way that they were seemingly able to do it so effortlessly. Might I suggest they didn't just suddenly wake up about a week before the Olympics and decide that I think I'll go and try to run the 100 meters with these world-class sprinters and compete with them doesn't happen that way. And we all know that. It began a long time ago when they began to set aside some hindrances in their way. Perhaps you and I might not be as excited if we knew the diet they had to keep, the hours per day they had to practice, for years to bring them to the point that they now were. You and I were just able to see the finality. How many years had they been practicing to run the marathon that way? How many years and how many times had Usain Ubolt, I don't know that I pronounced his name right, but he was the Jamaican that won the gold medal in the 100 meters. How many years had he practiced that? 
Probably it'd be an untold number, practically speaking, for you and me. He had set aside a lot of hindrances for a long time to practice, to serve beneath the tutelage of a coach, to appreciate the grandness of time after time, to bring one's body under subjection, to make it exhibit the power capable in it in running. He obviously had done it well. I might submit the Christian life has a similarity based upon this text to that idea, doesn't it? You and I must set aside the hindrances in life. Satan's going to tempt us with many things that have no part in the life of a person interested in serving the Lord. It's that simple, isn't it? In fact, Paul told that to Timothy. In speaking of the analogy to a soldier, he said that there, the soldier doesn't war with the things of this life. 2 Timothy 2, verse 4. No man warreth entangling himself with the affairs of the flesh. Doesn't that mean then for us to walk in faith? We shouldn't encumber our life, mess our life up, if you'll bear the expression, with the things that are not matters that lead to eternal glory. In fact, it's a foolish thing to pursue that, isn't it? We should lay aside the hindrances just like those world-class sprinters have done for so long so that they can obtain the prize. He identifies for us what those weights are related to. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. It is still a fact of existence, isn't it, that Satan will attempt to encumber your life and mine with these sinful weights. He will do so... And if we aren't careful, the gradual movement in that direction, we one day will wake up and realize that I am totally overcome with it. We find ourselves in a very sad place, a place where we no longer have any real association with the Lord. He has long since jettisoned our consideration to Him. When we find ourselves like that, we aren't a good influence for His cause. In fact, we are hurtful in a real way. For when others look at us, they say, if that's what a member of the church of Christ is like, I live just as good as that. My language is just as wholesome as his. My dress is as modest as hers. If we come to that point, we certainly have now allowed sin to overwhelm us. We need to set those hindrances aside at once. We need to start again to run down that pathway that leads to everlasting glory rather than the pathway that leads to the devil's being. For that's no good place to be at all, is it? Might we look onward, though? Because to run, notice there is a prepositional phrase near the close of that verse. Run with patience the race that is set before us. There's again the hallmark need of patience, isn't there? We understand, and Satan will make certain of it, life will be bumpy. We know that as those marathoners run, often it's a nice, smooth pathway, but when the time does come, there's a grade. That's often, I'm told, when marathoners reach the point of almost bodily collapse. They must practice and be ready for a slight ascendancy in grade so that they can also overcome that. May we know we must also run with patience. It takes endurance. And is it not still true in terms of the marathoner? The person who's first out of the blocks certainly isn't necessarily the one that wins the race. Our marathoner needs endurance 
steadfast, patient perseverance to run 26.2 miles. Doesn't matter if you can run the first mile quickly or not. Doesn't matter if you can run the first 10 miles quickly or not. It's who can endure to the end at a consistent, steady, powerful pace. That's the person that's going to win it. It is the same, my friend, living the Christian life. When we're baptized, if we bolt out of the blocks with all the excitement in the world, but then a year later we've gone right back into the same world of sin, the Lord says in 2 Peter 2, we're worse off now than we were, than we were before we obeyed the Lord. 2 Peter 2, verse 20. Rather, when we come into the kingdom, we need, just like a powerful locomotive, with all the excitement and energy thus to proceed with endurance and constancy through the remainder of our life with the Lord in the flesh. That's what it requires, isn't it? Maybe in verse 2, one final thought to our lesson this evening. The nature of verse 2 continues on now to bring Jesus directly into the picture. In addition to laying aside the weights, and in addition to it running with patience, we notice another verb. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I might submit one more observation that I think would be fairly in order. Pick any one of those Olympic athletes you like. There was a coach somewhere involved. An individual who was able to provide guidance, tutelage, instruction, who was able to critique when things weren't quite right, who perhaps was able to encourage the best and proper technique and methodology to be the fastest sprinter, the fastest runner, the best ping-pong player, whatever the sport was. Who is our coach? Verse number 2 says it best, doesn't it? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Notice, he was the author. He's the one that set the pace. He's the finisher. He's the one that will draw it to its conclusion. He is the first, the last, and everything in between. He is, in fact, the best coach. The Hebrew writer earlier in this book emphasized the same thing. If you'd like to read sometime this week the last few verses of chapter number 6, you remember that he is our forerunner. And that's the literal King James rendering, our forerunner. That means he's blazed the trails before so he knows the pitfalls, he knows the dangers, he also knows the potential successes. He's our forerunner that leads us to glory. If we want to go to heaven then, it's no small thing to appreciate that we are given the instruction of Revelation 14.4 in these words, Follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. The Lamb has blazed the trail to heaven, and if we want to be there, all we must do is follow Him by faith, and we shall be where He now is. We have seen then, interestingly tonight, some various features and aspects of three main points concerning Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. The obstacles that we've noted, the instruction that we've been given, can perhaps be summarized in a brief way in words like this. An exhortation to steadfastness, perseverance. And we highlighted it in these ways. First, lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. It is still the case that different individuals have different weights. What may be an obstacle, a hindrance to one person may really be no trouble to another. We each have our own issues, but they're all identified, at least in principle in this book. Secondly, 
laying those aside, we need to run with patience. That is, day by day, not slacking up, not taking a day off from Christ, for there are no vacation days in Christianity. In fact, even as we grow older and aged, we may not be able to do what we once could. We not, may not be able with the energy and vigor to accomplish what once was possible. But Psalm 92.14 still tells us there's work that we all can do. Thirdly, we notice that we look to our coach. We look to the author and finisher of our faith for all necessary instruction. Jesus Christ our Lord. He is still the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, Revelation 1 verse 8. The realization of these thoughts then beg the question of us. Are you running the Christian race tonight? Or have you perhaps chosen to sit down on a bench beside the way while others are running on by to the finish line? You need to get back in the race at once. For you see, the Lord promises no blessing to those that never cross that finish line. Paul again said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. It's only those that are promised that crown of life in 2 Timothy 4.8. You can't stop then, my friend. Are you a faithful Christian tonight? might ask these two questions. If you've never begun to run the race, you need to start running it tonight. That begins with your baptism. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, taught to us in Romans 10.14. You need to not only believe, for that alone isn't enough. We saw in Hebrews 11, faith is only the beginning point. You need to repent. You need to have a change of mind with respect to the sinful deeds of life that have been done by you before. Turn aside from them. Make a mental determination to do them no more. Also to fill your life with things that are positive and taught in the Bible. You need to confess Jesus' name as the Son of God, Acts 8.37. And you need to be baptized. There's no salvation prior to it or without it. The baptismal waters behind me are ready and warm. Ladies or gentlemen, whichever the case is, or would be more than happy to aid you in preparing for that activity. You would be so happy and excited to come forth from those watery grave of baptism, joyously able to rejoice because your sins are forgiven. If you've begun to run then the Christian race, but you again, as I mentioned, no longer are, you're sitting on the sideline, if you will. You need to get back in the game, and you need to run it with patience. If we could pray for strength for you, pray for your, the forgiveness of the sins that have encumbered your way, we'd be happy to do it tonight. But either of these can be accomplished only if you'll let us know that so that we can be of assistance. And we would urge you and plead with you to do that while together we stand and while we sing.